0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 36. Last week, I wrapped up the episode covering the reign of Amenhotep III, and briefly mentioned his successor, who had become known as Akhenaten. To set the stage, if the Exodus occurred in the mid-15th century BC, this would have been while the Israelites were getting settled in Canaan and while the Egyptians still exercise some control over the region. But, as you learned a few episodes ago, this also could have been before the Exodus, depending on which dating theory you subscribe to. Either way, the history of Egypt at the time plays an integral role with the history of the Israelites. This week, I'm covering the next couple of pharaohs, some of whom have names you are already familiar with, but their specific history is largely unknown in the Western world. And with that, let's get started. Amenhotep III died in 1353 BC, and was immediately succeeded by his son, Amenhotep IV, who himself would sit on the throne for 17 years. But before covering his rule, I need to at least remind you of a few things mentioned in the last episode. First, number four was not the heir apparent. That would actually be his older brother, Thutmose, who, unfortunately for him, died before his father. So, Amenhotep IV would rise to the rank of crown prince. Also, there is debate if number 4 served as co-regent prior to his father's death. Those that support the co-regency claim it could have been as long as 12 years, which, by typical Egyptian standards from the period, would have been a really long time, about six times longer than usual. The general consensus is that if there was a co-regency, it was more typical, about two years, if at all. Early in his reign, Amenhotep continued the tradition of construction, in his case, a new palace for his royal wife, Queen Nefertiti, the original and one and only. He also had new temples built, and improved on existing ones. And, the focus on temples is important considering what is to come. In the seventh month of his fifth year, Amenhotep IV changed his name to Akhenaten. Why? Well, in short, he was attempting to emphasize his complete loyalty to their deity Aten. The name Akhenaten can be translated to the phrase, the living spirit of Aten. So, in essence, he was claiming to be the living spirit of the deity, At the same time, he began construction on his new capital, named Akintaten, which translates to Horizon of Aten. It would later be known as Armana. And since we're already on the subject, I'll take just a minute to attempt to explain how this religious shift unfolded. At the same time as his other construction projects, he had several massive temples to Aten built. In these, Aten was usually portrayed as a sun disk with rays extending as long arms and tiny human hands at the end of each. Skipping ahead, later rulers would disassemble the Aten temples and use the stones in their own construction projects, particularly at Thebes. Thousands of years later, archaeologists would uncover some 36,000 decorated blocks from the original Aten temple, many still displaying the original relief scenes and inscriptions. Back to Akhenaten's fifth year on the throne. In this year, he took pivotal steps to establish Aten as the sole god of Egypt. One of the first things he did was to disperse the priesthoods of all the other gods. But he wasn't done. He then diverted the income from the disbanded cults to support Aten, Next, he centralized Egyptian religious practices in the city of Akintantin, all while continuing the construction of this new capital, eventually building some of the largest temples of the period, all for Aten. And he changed one key aspect of worship, too. Aten was worshipped in the open sunlight, instead of in the dark temples, as had been done up until that point. But you have to go into this with the understanding that his attempted religious shift is not well understood. There is still a debate among academics about the extent he forced his religious reforms on the general populace. What is known is that he set about reworking the religious language to minimize the names of lesser gods while promoting the name of Aten, or Ra, as he considered these the two names of the same divinity to the extent of erasing, meaning carving out the other deities' names from monuments. He seemed particularly focused on erasing the name of Amun, whom many of his contemporaries considered to be the supreme god. And, the interesting thing about this is that this is about the same time that some Egyptian religious leaders were considering the merging of Amun with Ra, forming the hyper-supreme being Amun-Ra and this merging was not fought by Akhenaten, at least in the beginning. He initially represented Aten as a variant of moon ra placing his new belief in a familiar Egyptian religious context. One curious thing is that he did not really push the elimination of the other deities, just their minimization. The names Amos and Thutmose, both associated with various deities, remained fairly common among court officials. Also, jewelry depicting other beings continued to be worn throughout the kingdom. The best, and probably most accurate analogy I could find, was that Aten was equated with the sun, and the other beings were much dimmer in their magnitude, comparable to the stars of the night sky. But, these same stars are present in the daytime, but their shine is completely masked by the brightness of the sun. So, the actual definition of this shift isn't really towards monotheism, but more monoaltristic, or henotheistic, essentially meaning the focus on one god out of many in a pantheon. By his ninth year, Akhenaten declared that Aten was not merely the supreme god, but the only worshipable god, and that he, the pharaoh, was the only intermediary between Aten and his people. A unique position of power. He then ordered the defacing of Amun's temples throughout Egypt, and in a number of instances, inscriptions on the other gods were also removed. At that time, he began a broader change in their society, potentially even banning images other than that of Aten. And the images of Aten commonly included a footnote, specifically that the representation of the sun as an all-encompassing creator was to be interpreted as just that, a depiction of an idea that, by its very nature, as something transcending creation, cannot be fully or adequately represented by any one part of that creation. Essentially, a picture of something that a picture of cannot do it justice. Some of the populace took to this new belief system, as artifacts of Akhenaten showed that many ordinary residents of this city chiseled out references to the god Amun, including those on their personal property. But this may have been done in fear of reprisals, and even some instances of Akhenaten's father's name were removed, presumably since they contained the traditional form of his name, which referenced Amun. Despite his attempts and his bully pulpit, The general populace, along with his religious leaders of course, did not readily accept these changes. And his reforms were not without cost, specifically economic cost. The construction of the temples and the upending of the traditional religious practices took their toll on the economic security he inherited from his father. Some speculate that it even eventually led to the collapse from within after his death. Another unintended consequence was that the centralization of religious practices may have enabled his court officials to become corrupt, siphoning off money intended for the religion to their personal coffers. More pointedly, the growth of the central government led to a decline in local administration, In an economic sense, it upended the centuries-old system of production and distribution of goods, one that went through the local markets, governments, and temples, and this was upended without firmly establishing a replacement national system. More simply, Akhenaten failed to understand all of the implications of the religious revolution he was pushing. Almost immediately after his death, the Egyptian society began its reversion back to true polytheism, but it began slowly, probably as a result of the populace waiting on their new leader to signal his intention, or her intention. More on that lack of pronoun specificity in a bit. Within about a decade, more thorough religious and political restoration had taken place, returning the society to about where it was prior to Akhenaten's rule, and the people set about doing what they had done a few, maybe many times in the past. Hammer time. Well, really, hammer and chisel time. Removing much of the art and temple construction created during Akhenaten's reign. It was during this period that those 36,000 or so stones were repurposed, but that wasn't all. The monuments were dismantled and hidden, his statues were demolished, and his name was removed from the king list. This would present problems to future historians and archeologists that I'll get to in a minute. The traditional religious practice was slowly restored, over a decade later and after his descendants were fully out of power. It was in this period that those 36,000 or so stones were repurposed. But that wasn't all. His monuments were dismantled and hidden, his statues were demolished, and his name was removed from the king list. This would present problems to future historians and archaeologists that I'll get to in a minute. The traditional religious practice was slowly restored. Over a decade later, and after his descendants were fully out of power, the new leadership tagged him with new branding, often referring to Akhenaten as the enemy or that criminal, in archival records. And, before moving from his religious changes to everything else concerning his time on the throne, there's a fringe theory I need to cover. And the usual disclaimer, not my belief, but you probably want to hear it, just in case anyone ever mentions it to you. And that is the proposal that Akhenaten was the originator of monotheism, and that the Hebrews borrowed his belief, In order for this to work, as I'm sure you've already figured out, the Exodus could not have occurred in the mid-15th century BC, as that would mean that the Israelites recorded their practice of monotheism 100 years before Akhenaten took the throne. It also assumes that you ignore Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and the whole lot of other Hebrews that certainly predate this Pharaoh. Anyway, with that out of the way, to the theory we go. One of the pioneers of this belief was none other than Sigmund Freud, the early 20th century Austrian neurologist and psychologist. He actually wrote a book published in 1939, the year of his death, a book entitled Moses and Monotheism, where he explored the topic. He proposed that Moses was born an Egyptian and had been an Atenist priest forced to leave Egypt with his followers after Akhenaten's death. Freud argued that Akhenaten was striving to promote monotheism, something that the biblical Moses was able to achieve. Following his book, the concept entered the popular consciousness. Since then, though, Freud's work has been widely dismissed, which is a broader trend the book is now viewed as more of a thought experiment than an actual serious work. It's also important to note that Freud made a practice of treating religion as an infantile emotional need for a powerful supernatural parental figure. So, his attempt to dismiss the biblical story of Moses as the great-something grandson of Abraham and the pillar of the early religion should not be a surprise. History forgot about Akhenaten until the 19th century discovery of the city of Akhenaten, the city he built and designed for the worship of Aten, essentially at Armana. Early excavations at Armanda by Flinders Petrie. Yes, the Brit is back. His dig initiated interest in the mysterious Pharaoh, and a mummy found in a tomb in the Valley of Kings is thought to be him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The Armana letters, which I've mentioned numerous times in the past, originated in his reign. They are essentially diplomatic correspondence uncovered at Armana, so at the ancient city of Akhenaten, and provide the best documentation of Akhenaten's reign and foreign policy. These clay tablets were sent to Akhenaten from various royal governors through Egyptian military outposts. Also included were letters from the rulers of the kingdom of Matani, Babylon, Assyria, and Hattai. Like the letters received by his father, both the royal governors and the foreign kings wrote regularly to appeal for gold and other valuable resources. They also frequently complained that he had disrespected and cheated them. The letters revealed that early in his reign, Akhenaten had a disagreement with Tushreda, the king of the Matani. In the last episode, I covered how Akhenaten’s father had formed an alliance with Tushrada against the Hittites, and this wasn’t strictly a feud among the rulers of two different countries. It was a family affair, as Tushrada's sister, Kilekhipa, along with his daughter, Tadukhipa, were married to Amenhotep III, so they were Akhenaten’s stepmothers. Also, Akhenaten would marry his stepmother. Tadukipa, making Tushrada his father-in-law. Which brings me to Tushrada's complaint. The Matani king sent Akhenaten several letters complaining that the Egyptian pharaoh had sent him gold-plated wooden statues, rather than statues made of solid gold. He was also supposed to have sent, gold beyond measure, but he didn't. And these weren't merely gifts, but they were part of the price he paid to marry Tushraddha's daughter, their version of a dowry. But that wasn't the only diplomatic trouble faced in Canaan, all while the Israelites were getting settled in the region, at least according to one timeline. Akhenaten was apparently somewhat concerned about the potential impact of a successful Hittite attack on the Mitanni should it occur. He knew that a triumphant Hittite attack on the Mitanni would have upended the balance of power in Canaan, and could potentially, well likely, cause Egypt's vassals in the region to swap their allegiances to the Hittites. When a group of Egypt's allies, under the domain of the Hittites, rebelled, they wrote letters begging Akhenaten for troops, but he ignored most of their pleas. He missed his opportunity. This would lead to more conflict in Egypt's northern territory of Canaan, specifically in a power struggle at Shechem in Jerusalem, a struggle that required the Pharaoh to send troops to the region, and Akhenaten refused to save his subjects at Biblos, when they were besieged by the Amorites. Overall, it seems that Akhenaten neglected Egypt's outlying territories in order to focus on his internal reforms. But through a bit of luck, and some maneuvering, he was able to maintain some territory in Canaan, with the Hittites taking most of their gains from the Mitanni. Also of note was a single campaign in Nubia, who rebelled. Again. A rebellion that was put down. Again. In the first years of his reign, Amenhotep lived in Thebes with his royal wife, Queen Nefertiti, along with six of his daughters. In many drawings of the pharaoh and queen, Nefertiti is pictured beside the pharaoh, and she is sometimes engaging in movements usually reserved solely for a pharaoh. This is thought to suggest that she enjoyed unusual status for a queen. Early artistic representations of her tend to picture her as nearly identical to her husband, except for her regalia. And, Nefertiti wasn't his only wife, He was apparently married to his full, or half-sister, a woman really only known by the moniker, the Younger Lady, or maybe named Kia, who would be the mother of the later pharaoh Tutankhamen, a.k.a. King Tut. But Tut would not be his successor, at least not his immediate successor. That honor would fall to a little understood person named Sminker, who I'll get to in a minute or two. Given the artistic renderings of Akhenaten, there's long been speculated theories on illness and other abnormalities he may have suffered. The strange portrayals of Akhenaten, highlighted by a sagging stomach, thick thighs, large breast, and a long thin face, were different from the athletic norm in the portrayal of the other pharaohs. Just think back to the feats of strength his great-grandfather, Amenhotep II, was portrayed as demonstrating. The pictures of Akhenaten have caused some researchers to propose that he suffered some sort of genetic abnormality. A litany of afflictions have been proposed, including Froelich's syndrome, Marfan's syndrome, and homocysteria. A final medical explanation is that he suffered from a form of familial temporal epilepsy, This would help to explain the seemingly premature deaths of his predecessors and successors. It would also provide an explanation for his abnormal body shape on sculptures and his religious conviction, due to this type of epilepsy's association with intense spiritual visions and religiosity. But there is currently no definitive genetic test for epilepsy. So, despite having access to his mummy, and that of his descendants, the theory is impossible to prove, or disprove. And, to note, diagnosing an ailment is difficult enough when there is a patient to examine. Doing so from a drawing is pretty much an impossible task. There is another potential explanation for his artistic portrayal, and that is that he was drawn as some form of religious symbolism, Owing to that the god Aten was referred to as both the father and mother of all people, it has been proposed that Akhenaten was made to look androgynous in artwork, as a symbol of the androgyny of their god. He may also have used his depictions to distance himself from normal people, as strange as these depictions appear to us today. Akhenaten died during his 17th year on the throne. Before his death, he made his plans to relocate burials to the east bank of the Nile clear. But at some point, his mummy was moved back to the west bank, and that's where it was recovered by archaeologists. When the mummy thought to be his was found, it wasn't exactly in pristine condition, and instead was a jumble of bones. But they do tell a bit of a story. His skull is long and has a prominent chin and the limbs are similarly light and long. In 2007, a CAT scan was conducted and found an elongated skull, cheekbones, cleft palate, and impacted wisdom teeth, implying that the mummy is the father of King Tut, and therefore is Akhenaten. Genetic testing yielded the same results. Akhenaten was succeeded by Sminkur, one of the shortest-lived and more mysterious pharaohs of the period. Very little is known of Sminkur, most likely because later kings sought to erase the entire Armana period from history. It's also unclear if Sminkur served as a co-regent prior to his predecessor's death, and if he was ever really an independent pharaoh. But that's not all we're unsure about. Sminkur may have been Akhenaten's half-brother, or a son. Or, and this is even more interesting, a few researchers have proposed that Sminker was actually an alias of Queen Nefertiti or Queen Kia, and therefore Akhenaten's wife. He, or she, whichever, if he ruled solely, it was for likely less than a year. A tomb was uncovered that contained several mummies, one of which may be Sminker. But considering how little we know of the ruler, we may never know if this mummy is that of this specific ruler. Medical examinations of the mummy show it is a man, about 40 years old and with no apparent abnormalities. The cranium was similar to that of Thutmose IV and Tut, so possibly a relative. And this is more conclusive. The mummy and Tut shared the same rare blood type, so maybe Tut's father or brother. Later genetic testing would narrow the list to an almost certainty that the mummy was Tut's father and the son of Amenhotep III. Curiously, Tut's mother was Tut's father's full sister. I'll cover that in more detail in the next episode. And with all of this came the surprise. The mummy wasn't likely this unknown, short-lived ruler, but was probably Akhenaten, so much for that previously identified mummy but the theory that this recently identified mummy is truly Akhenaten is not, of course, without its detractors. The mummy itself was noteworthy, at least for the condition it was found in. Unlike nearly every other royal mummy, this one was found alone in a tomb, with few of the symbols and artifacts typically accompanying ancient Egyptian burials. Overall, the general opinion is that this mummy was not really buried, but was just disposed of. Why? Well, of course, there's the theory that with his attempted religious reforms being discarded, he may have fallen into such ill repute that he was discarded too. But there's something else, meaning another theory, and that is that the royal family ran out of tombs. At that time, most royal tombs were located in Armana rather than Thebes, but then the city was abandoned. About the same time, a plague ravaged the neighboring kingdom of Alashia, thought to be the island of Cyprus. The same plague may have hit the Egyptians at Armana, or more broadly, Egypt as a whole, and, with the capital moving, and a lack of workers, or perhaps just one of those factors, there could have been a shortage of tombs at Thebes. When he was done being mummified, the tomb may have been simply sealed with the mummy, and whatever else was available placed inside. And with that, I'll wrap up this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the history of the New Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.